The Imposter Club is produced by talented people, staffing and headhunting company in TV production, with a mission to make the industry a happier, more creatively diverse place. Coming up. Is this the day, is this the gig where everyone realises I've been facing it the whole time and it all comes cracking down? This is The Imposter Club, the podcast uniting all us TV, film and content folk secretly stressing that everyone else has it sorted except us. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, TV director turned staffing company founder, and each episode, I want you to hear the real story of a successful industry figure. Not the glossy announcements we usually see, but the truth of their career journey, including the bumpy bits, to help you make sense of your own. Health warning, this podcast may incur whiplash from violent nodding, plus an unfamiliar but hopefully welcome feeling of belonging. A massive imposter club welcome to Adam Pearson, who is an award-winning disability rights campaigner, actor, presenter and speaker. Adam also worked behind the scenes in various creative roles in the TV industry when where we first met back in around 2012, I think it was. Um, we were in the same production office when he cast and researched on countless series of Channel 4's The Undateables before turning on-screen presenter on consumer series like Tricks of the Restaurant Trade and on-screen for more personal journeys like Adam Pearson, Freak Show, The Ugly Face of Disability Hate Crime and The Highbrow Horizon, My Amazing Twin. And I mean, as if that wasn't enough, in 2013, he was cast alongside none other than Scarlett Johansson in the BAFTA-nominated film Under the Skin, saying he hoped the role would change disfigurement stigma. And I actually remember you asking me to guess which hot A-lister you were going to be acting with, Adam, on the stairwell at Betty. (laughs) Oh, yes. Back back in the day. That was like... I think it was 2011 we, we we did that movie. Or we, we certainly recorded it in 2011. Yeah, you were so because, excited. Um, yeah, but I don't know if you, you remember or not, I broke my leg on the way to the final audition. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, I got hit by a black cab outside the office. <gasps> and so, obviously, you still got the part, limping. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh... The director came and saw me the next day in UCL while I was waiting for surgery on my leg. I got like a pins and screws in it. Oh, my life. So did you have to do a kind of a read through from your hospital bed? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) That's unreal. It was a weird one. (laughs) Now, you've also been, because the list just keeps going, on Celebrity MasterChef. We probably don't talk about where you came. I mean, I, I went out quickly. Uh, bish bash bosh out with a bang I went in I left the cab running while I did the thing and he got straight back in and (laughs) and came home you were just saving the production costs I would think weren't you exactly yeah exactly I'm I'm nothing but efficient so I hear you binge listened the imposter club series one uh I mean did did. did it give you kind of food for thought about your own relationship with imposter syndrome well it's something I I think about a lot Anyway, I think as and it happens a lot with um particularly with disability, I whenever I, I find myself doing something or whenever I 
constantly coming out either on the telly or, or in, in the film world. I find myself having to justify my reasons for being there more than non-disabled counterparts would. But also, I, I think in foster syndrome, in, in moderation of course, perfectly fine and healthy. I think the only people who don't get imposter syndrome are imposters. Interesting. So if you get it, it means you're legit. If you're either legitimately good at what you do, or you're a, a, a liar, a cheat, and a swindler. <laughs> and I don't think there's anything in, in between. I think you can steal someone in between. I think those things are legitimate. But I think the actual facts of the matter are, are that clear-cut. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let's dig into some of that and how it might have manifested itself across the course of your life and your career so as a child did you did you always want to be on camera in, in, in a way i was naturally good at it i was always quite chatty quite charismatic and, and a little bit out there i was always a a wild child so i i first fell in love with with the media i think i was eight years old and a, a friend of my father's took us to the bbc to go and watch live and kicking being done live at uh tv center in shepherd foot uh long way at rest in peace yes uh, the, the, the whole thing just fascinated me just the the the, the energy in the room how fast-paced everything was Everyone seemed to, to like their job. And I, and I think there's a lot to be said for liking your job. So I was just like, yeah, this is this is where I want to try and get to when I'm a grown-up. So you thought, this is cool. I like the idea of working in TV. How did you make that happen? I deliberately avoided any kind of media academia because I read an interview with Janet Street Porter who said she'd never hire a media graduate because they're all fucking useless. No, the whole world's not mine. Don't, don't come for me if you're hearing it. <laughs> so I got in on the BBC, what was then the BBC Extend scheme, where they recruit solely uh, disabled candidates. And the original job I went for was to work at six, what was then Six Music. Yeah. And I, I came second. And you get that, you know, when you don't get a job, you get that email saying, we really like to keep the name on record, yada, yada, yada. Those like eye-rolling, cut-and-paste numbers. Yeah. And then I got a phone call two days later saying they had a job come up in commissioning management. And was I, was I interested? Was I interested? And I went, yeah, 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 thinking they'd send me the form, I'd fill it in, and I'd never hear from them. And they just said, great, your you're interview's tomorrow. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and so I had a day to prepare for a uh, an interview. Um, and there was a tube strike that day as well. So even getting there was a little bit of a scramble. <laughs> but, yeah, made it, nailed it. Had, so that was like a six-month contract on what the, the power floor television center so all the channel heads and genre heads were like on the same corridor and i had a very frank chat with my line manager mary Fitzpatrick, who i owe a great deal to saying hey i'm planning to email everyone and get coffee with them 
like cool with you, is that gonna negatively affect you in any way? And she was like, no, go for it. So I think within the first month, I'd had coffee with uh, Mark Lindsay, Simon Wilson, Lucy Longden, Jada Bennett, Jay Hunt, I think I had coffee with. And then they all led to, I came into work, how I wound up at Betty after that was, I, I came into work one day and I was like a bit late and wicked hungover. And I was wearing like a marble superhero t-shirt because that was the first thing I touched in my rush to get out of the house. And I had a random chat with a random bloke in a lift, the old elevator pitch. No idea who he was. Um, turns out, Danny Cohen. All right. <laughs> Great. Who then sent me to introduce me to Liz Warner at Betty. I had to go and I, I got two weeks work experience there. I had to do two interviews. And then that two weeks became a month and two months that then became a junior researcher role. And then I just fell on, on screen. Yeah. So that, like, that feels like... Um... That's like networking 101 from my point of view because you, you got that placement through a scheme which you you know you applied for, got on your merit, but also used to your advantage, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of the schemes to the extent that you've got to play the game. Without them, I might not have the career I have, right? But the, the issue or the average I often take with schemes as well is what happens after that? Yeah. Right, there's this like revolving door, and I think we're very good at putting, like, let's use disability as an example, because that's, that's what I know. We're really good at putting disabled people in jobs. I think we're appalling at putting disabled talent in careers, and there's a real difference. Yeah. What happens after the scheme? Where, where's the progression? Yes, it doesn't feel genuine, and it's not going to be sustainable for a career. No, I, I hear you on that one. So you were researching on undateables, how did, yeah, tell me about, how did you go from off screen to on screen? Can you remember like a conversation where that happened? So I was in development and we, we discussed an idea that was similar to super size versus super skinny, but looking at beauty obsession and disfigurement that then went on to become beauty in the beast, the ugly face of prejudice. And so we, we developed it, we filmed like a, a pilot for it or like a, yeah, a sizzler, if you will. And I was in, in the Sizzler. And then we had this idea of like a strand going through it. Where I, I go out, I sort of like a, a journalist. And then that just sort of happened and became a thing. Mm, so you kind of created that opportunity. Well, were you the one who went, I could present that? Yeah. Well, let's talk about how you feel as someone who has a, a physical disability being on camera, right? Has that ever been a hang up for you or has it been fuel for the reason for you to want to do it? I think it's more the, the fuel to do it. I, I, I don't I don't see the logic in getting hung up about it. And, and, you know, there'll, there'll be people there that go, oh, he's only there because he's disabled, yada, yada, yada. And it's just, it's like, or, or here's an alternate reality. I, I'm here because I worked hard and I'm good at my job. And also, people have to like you in this industry. And I think that's the thing that everyone tends to, to get amongst the, the competitiveness of it and, and the drive to work your way up the ladder. That you, you've still got to be a good bloke. And people still need to like you and want to work with you. 
Yeah. And and you you can I I always say and this this is a quote that I I steal from the, the comedian Jim Jeffries is you can boil any religious doctrine down to four simple words: don't be a dick. <laughs> Well, yes, I would like to live by that um, that motto as well. And it seems to have worked for you, right? Well, I, I have my dissishness to me. I've got an edge to me. But no, when you're at work, you're at work, right? You know, be, be nice to people and treat people how you want to be treated. So you don't know who you're going to be on the way up or on the way down. Yeah, but I, I have to say, though, Adam, like, I'm really humbled by you saying that because... I know, and from your personal films, as well as you a bit personally, that you experience prejudice probably most days because of the way that you look. So how how have you turned that into just be kind to everyone? You could have had a very different take on life. Yeah, but you 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 just crack on with it, don't you? And I, I've always had the, the attitude that the people that matter don't mind and the people that mind don't matter and you you put your head down and you 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 rock up you do your job and you you make a difference and I, I've never been one to give the opinions of strangers any any kind of credence I I, I have zero f's about what funky badger 38 on twitter thinks about me but does it does it have a personal cost though Adam do it talking so openly about yourself over and over again and campaigning for disability rights oh does it have a personal cost I think that there's there's a sort of whenever you you wear one's heart on on one's sleeve there's, there's a certain level of exhaustion that comes with um vulnerability I mean and once people knows you and know your story and know you well there's there's no going back right you can't you can't put the genie back in the bottle or unring or unring the bell so whenever you do go on the telly and do a documentary and, and expose yourself emotionally or do a film and expose yourself physically once it's out there it's out there and you can't you can't then un, undo it but then, like, like I say, it, if it helps make the world better and fairer, then I think it's a really good trade-off. Yeah. What I don't think I've ever asked you, actually, and what I don't think people kind of want to, but I, I like to get, oh, God, this is a bit of a pun, under the skin. Ha-ha. For real film. Hooray. Of um, our guests on a different level on this podcast is, what does it... What are the physical effects of your disability on you? Like, give me an example of what you feel and go through every day in terms of comfort. I mean, physically as well as emotionally. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, the, the condition I have is is surprisingly common. People think it it rare, and and technically it is, but only just. So the the benchmark for rare is one in two thousand. And NF1, what I have is one in 2,300. So, it, like, like most things, it has a, a spectrum. And I, I am very much the spinal tap of, of NF1. I've turned, I've turned that shit up to 11. Um, I, I'm fortunate, or I'm not in any physical pain. I, I'm quite partially sighted. 
But I don't know, that's the only thing. I, I've, I have to go to a lot of doctor's appointments and have a lot of surgeries, and those are just, to me, by the by now. And once you've been around the, the medical world for as long as I have, it just all becomes second nature and, and just a, a part of the day-to-day. Don't go anywhere. How many more of these panels are you going to make me do before you listen to what I say and, and crack on? This is the Imposter Club, and I'm talking to Adam Pearson. When you leave the house, go to Sainsbury's, go um, to the you know whatever, meet your friends. You know what what's a sort of regular occurrence? Because you look very different. Yeah, I I don't know because I sort of chewed it out. I don't really again. I don't pay attention to strange strangers. Like, I, I go out to, like, meet my mates and hang out with people I like, and I don't look around at what people I don't know are doing or or what they think of me. If people want to know, they can come and ask me, and I'll, I'll willingly have have a chat with them. I, I've, got, I've got no problem there. Um, but, no, it, it, it mainly... All, all of the, uh, the I, I guess, bullshit, for want of a better terminology, happens online. Like, back in back in the day, the good old days, if you wanted to be a dick to someone, you'd have to find them, you'd look them dead in the face and say it. And then you'd watch their soul die behind their eyes. Yeah. And you'd feel this good old-fashioned emotion called guilt or remorse. Whereas now, you can just write it and send it and feel all-powerful. Yeah, unless Adam Pearson gets back and uh, uses one of his legendary comebacks to you online. Oh, Adam Pearson Trollbuster is is still alive and well. <laughs> You've got such a good sense of humour, though. I mean, does that give you a sense? Why Why do you? Why do you reply to people with humour? I want, I, want, I, want, I want them to know I've seen it. But I want other people to see that I've, I've seen it. I know, it's, it's, and it's probably the like, absolute wrong way to do it. But I, I want to sort of like do sort of like a Game of Thrones thing where I drag them through the streets <laughs> naked and everyone goes, Game, 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 and, and throw stuff at them. I want to do like an online version of that every time I, I reply to someone. You sound really good at being able to put things in, either dealing with it with humour or completely ignoring it and cracking on with your own life. Does that sound fair? Yeah, it's all about perspective. Yeah. And actually, you, you you brought up something there that um, I think will be really useful for our listeners to um, to hear your opinion on. So you said that if someone comes up to you and asks you a question about your disability, you're really cool with that. And I think there mm-hmm. is a lot of, uh, I don't know what to say, so I'd rather not say anything. Or um, if you're with a child who asks a much more direct question than any adult can probably likely do, then they're really embarrassed. H- I mean, how would you encourage people to um, to to talk openly about disability? Yeah, as long as people are coming at it with like a clear head and a full heart, then rock and roll. And I'd rather someone have a crack at it, get it wrong, and then and then be lovingly corrected. I don't like putting people on blast when they get it wrong because I think that's part of the problem. There's a small section of the disability community 
So it's a sprawling good argument. They, they wake up every day and choose violence. And I think the more eggshells you put down for people to potentially trip on, the less likely they're going to walk there anyway. So, yeah, I think, I think as, as much as I want people to already have it right in their heads, I equally think it's, it's the, the, the right and noble thing to do to teach people how to get it right and to get people used to saying the D word. Yeah. Excellent use of idioms, by the way. The eggshell thing, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Loved it. It's it's almost like it's my job, right? <laughs> it is. It's like you're talking in sound bites. I mean, this is going to be a dream to edit. <laughs> so, come and then teach or tell us a bit about how you challenge imposter syndrome when you're walking into a situation where you've got an audition or you're going in for an interview or you're going to do a TEDx talk. How do you have that word with yourself to overcome it personally? I think I think a little bit of nervousness is good. I Who was I talking to? I was talking to the... Victoria Jenkins from Channel 4 is the unique critique, who's a friend of mine, because we're, we're doing a, a fashion show together. And, um, yeah, a, a little bit of nerves are good, because if you're not nervous about what you do, it means you don't care. And the day I stop caring is the day I need to clean it up and let someone that does give a shit take over. So, yeah, I, 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 I you know, you, you, you do get the nerves, and you, you do... So I find yourself in situations where you're like, what is, what the f*** are you doing in your person? But then you, 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 you give your head a wobble, you have your, you have, have you seen the film Cool Runnings? I mean, a very long time ago. You know that bit where you look to the mirror and it's like, I see pride, I see power, yes. I see a badass man who don't take no crap off of nobody. I do it, and sometimes I catch myself doing it in the accent and have to stop. <laughs> so... So positive affirmation, though, that's a good message. Yeah, and I don't think you, you find yourself in situations by mistake. And it comes back to if you weren't the real deal, you wouldn't be there. And if you weren't the real deal, you wouldn't get imposter syndrome. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there are different interpretations of imposter syndrome, right? There are people who genuinely feel like an imposter in that I should not be here, I don't deserve to be here and then I suppose there are literal imposters who are faking it because they don't have the right qualifications but but imposters don't get imposter syndrome hmm no I'm chewing that over you're right because they believe they should be there or that they are faking it on purpose is that what you mean yeah 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 yeah. the only people that don't get imposter syndrome are imposters which is why I would always advocate for a little bit of imposter syndrome because it means you're the real deal and that you give a shit about what you're doing. Yes. It has to be a healthy amount, though. Um, because, so, I don't know, you probably listened to Ollie Lambert's um, episode. Super successful yeah. BAFTA award-winning director in war zones. I mean, a heavy burden to, to bear. And I think there, there was certainly a time in his career where he felt he simply could not make that film he wasn't worthy of it he could never tell a story as big as the syrian war um and it negatively impacted him whereas coming back round to this part of his career i think he's got it in check and just enough of it to check himself um yeah yeah is that how you feel yeah i think when it gets to a point where it's sort of like anxiety inducing 
because I, I, and it's the only time I've ever really, it's become a problem, was when I had to do my first actual keynote speech. And it was the one for the British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists. Which rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, and I was like, I've got to go for an hour on this. Because the longest I've done was, like, maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. So, like, an hour with Q&A just felt like a lot. And, you know, I, I, in the end, I got my head together and wrote it. But writing it was just, oh, I've, I've never been so anxious in my life than getting ready for that keynote. And did anything throw you at the time? I was just, just doing it. It just felt overwhelming. So I was like, oh, is this, is this the day? Is this the gig where everyone realises I've been facing it the whole time? <laughs> And it all comes cracking down. Every, every gig, I'm like, is this the one where they find out you're an idiot? Is this the one where you let the mask slip and everyone finds out you're a moron and you never work again? <laughs> I think that will be reassuring for people to hear because, I, well, I think most people have been there. Right, I want to ask you about acting in Hollywood films. You've actually done a couple um, haven't you? Or you've been you've played yourself in a film as well as playing opposite Scarlett yeah. Johansson in Under the Skin. Uh, yeah, played played myself in Drib, did um Chained for Life with Jess Wexler. And I've just done one with Sebastian Stan. I mean, it sounds like your acting career is going fantastically. How does it compare from working in a UK TV production office? Um, there's there's a lot more weight around in in acting like in, in the tv office there was always something to do right i either something was going wrong and it was a cop that scrambled up to fix it all or your your commissioner had unrealistic expectations that you were trying to to manage like only on dateables i reckon at one point anything that wasn't a one-legged tap dancing lesbian in a wheelchair wasn't good enough for like lucy plus that so it was, it was just like, what do you want from me? <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's a, a lot more wasting around. But one, one shot on set, everything just runs. Like, yeah. And even even like the, but even, even getting to that point where you've got to go to like the US Embassy and get, get your former visa. Because I had my eye visa through, through Becky. But an O visa is way more rigid because you've got to go, you've got to prove to them that you're the only guy that can do that job and why haven't they hired and and, and Martin, yada, yada, yada. And yeah, it, it's intense. And so did you have to rehearse with Scarlett um, before you filmed it for a few days or does it not work like that? You rehearse separately and then you just come together and shoot it? Well, a, a lot of the under the skin stuff is improvised. We had bullet points we had to hit, but there was no real hardline script that we had to keep to. We both had earpieces in, and the director, Jonathan, was in the back of the van, sort of like giving us a direct scene. But no, we hadn't done any rehearsing, per se. We'd had a couple of meetings prior to discuss the character and just get to know each other. Because it was just like, I was asked if someone pulled up to the van and offered you a lift, would you get in? And I'm like, no, that's how children go missing. Why would I get in a van with someone I don't know? Well, there are puppies in it as well, Jesus. And so we, we sort of like 
worked on the character and what both our motivations in the scene would be. So once we got to set, we all knew where where we were. So you must have felt really bloody nervous for that day. Yeah, 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 yeah. There, there's one point where um, I got my earpiece in and the director's like, call me Pearson, you're in a diamond with Scarlett Johansson. What are you going to do? And you're like, I don't know so. <laughs> I mean, that is terrifying. And you hadn't had formal acting training or even a warm-up to any of this stuff, right? No. And they, they must have known that. I mean, that sounds like the definition of imposter syndrome, going from, you know, working on TV shows and a bit of presenting to acting opposite a very famous, beautiful person. Yeah. I, there was, um, but then, then I came to, maybe it's because I'm, I'm a simpleton, but I, I, I tend to walk into those situations a, a, a bit like a, a spaniel. I just want to go, this will be fine. This is great. I find if, if you overthink it, it can it can eat you up, I think. So um, talking about your career as a whole mm-hmm. and all the variety of stuff that you've done, can you think about, or can you give me the point where you felt you lacked most self-esteem and that you, it, was there a moment where you thought, I don't want to do this anymore. A, l- a real low point from your career. There, there was a period of just constant, constant being sat on diversity panels and nothing changing. And it, it got to the point where I was like, I, I think, I think I, I think I said it very publicly at Edinburgh TV Festival. I think I just said, how many more of these panels are you going to make me do before you listen to what I say and, and crack on? How many times is in certain name here, gonna make a pledge and not follow through on that before we we start making a difference. Yeah. And yeah, so there, there was that like year, two year period where I was just incredibly frustrated. In just a minute. People like it when you're when you're real with them, when you rock up, walk to the wall and are unashamedly yourself. Always be yourself because everyone else is taken. The Imposter Club podcast is to help you feel less alone. Go and share it with someone you know who'd benefit. Now, back to the chat. Do you think things have moved forward in a more positive way since then? I think uh, the disability numbers have gone down. I think they're shocking. I think in, I think we've excelled in other areas. I think the, the progress made so, um, like some... Um, diverse talent in terms of race has been incredible though i think disability we're still a long way off it's proportionally it's the largest minority group in the uk but it's the least represented both off and on screen yeah as an aside actually we're trying we're trying to get people on our database you know if they want to because it's so incredibly personal to disclose because i think we we do have a lot more people than we know about who are disabled but have cho- either chosen not to tell us or didn't know how to yeah and without that but but also it's it's so personal some people just don't want people to know and like you've said at various points it's like kind of you know none of their business can we just crack on because i'm good at what i do yeah it's definitely that okay and what about can you tell me a highlight of your career 
oh, see, it's really easy to say, you know, the movies, because you get to work with great people and you get to, like when I did the Sebastian Stanfield, I got to live in Manhattan two months. Awesome. So, so like, those things were always great. But me and um, Tom Levine recently reconnected and we, we found out about it the uh, the day of the deadline. Uh, there's, there's a really small media company called Disney who were looking for short film scripts from underrepresented groups. So I got this call from Tom saying, do you want to submit something? And I just thought, yeah, let's do it. And um, he was working on that, the Rosie Jones doc at the time, the one that's just, just come out. And so he, he read out of the, uh, the edit and we, we went to the pub and figured out this uh, idea about uh, disabled Dungeons and Dragons players. <laughs> cool. And um, and then we, we sent it off and then he, he calls me about a month later and goes, yeah, we've got to go pitch it. We're in the final 12. Wow. So we got to the final 12 from, I think, 430 ideas got submitted. What an achievement. And then, and then we're like, okay. And he's like, how do we pick this? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I've got you. Again, they don't have to like you. they just got to remember you. What did you do? So we went in and we just sort of like, we just tried through for 10, and it was like a 45-minute thing we had to do. And we spent 10 minutes of it just explaining the idea and how we knew each other and what have you. And then for the Q&A, which was the, the majority of it, I, I made them roll dice to determine how well we'd answer that question. <laughs> I turned the entire pitch into a game of D&D. Awesome. And I think someone asked a really important question about money and rolled a one. And I called them ridiculous and stupid and moved on really, really quickly. <laughs> Did they seem to like it? Well, I, I, after we left, luckily, one of the Disney execs was a former D&D player. And so as soon as we left, he just turned to the whole room and went, just so you all know, that was brilliant. <laughs> You've got some serious balls to do that, Adam. I don't know where you get your confidence from. I don't know. It seems to have been inherent, actually, as we're kind of wrapping up our chat here. But you seem to have been born with the ability to walk in a room and own it in the nicest possible way. You know, is that would you say that's a natural thing or have you sort of had to learn that? I think I think I was, as I said, I was naturally been quite charismatic. But then you you need to learn again i think it's communication skills are really important and you've got to meet people where they are running where you wish they were and and talk to them sort of on on a level and i think people people like it when you're when you're real with them when you rock up walk to the and and are unashamedly yourself i i, I always be yourself because everyone else is taken and and you know sometimes it doesn't work and you go a little bit too far and confidence can become arrogance but in those situations i'm disabled i don't know any better so yeah we all we all move on but yeah you know head, head down crack on and let's let's do this it's always been my attitude it's very infectious as well i've been grinning throughout this chat um last question then what what advice would you give to your younger self, I I'd be I'd say like you'll it works out fine. You'll you'll do good, kid. Keep doing what you're doing. There aren't enough good people. 
in our industry. And so be make sure you're one of them and don't become part of the problem, be part of the, the solution. There's a lot of people in this industry who don't need to be here, who are just hanging on for the pension. And yeah, no, there, there are. There, there's a real, there's a layer of people in TV whose sole job it is, which is to not take risks. And unfortunately, that layer is right at the top. Yeah, I've, I hear you. So yeah, no, t t take risks, be a good guy, and be be nice to people. No matter what capacity it's in, if you be nice to the higher ups, be nice to the lower downs, and don't ask people, and I've really stopped this, don't, particularly when you're casting, don't ask people to do something that you wouldn't be prepared to do. Okay. That's an interesting one. Have you have you been in that situation? When I was casting your data balls, I was like, would I do, would I go on this show? If I was called and asked to do this, would I do it? And if the answer is no, I've got no right to ask someone else to do it. Yeah, that's a good gauge. It's like a an ethical, ethical gauge there. Yeah. Well, because a lot of series two, um, a lot of the people I called, I just called from my mobile. When all the others were calling charities and and swinging blind in the dark, idiots, <laughs> I was just calling my friends. <laughs> well, that's lived experience, right? But also, disabled people are talented in, in their own right. Um, or whatever I do my um, D&I training and my consultancy stuff, I'm like, if you're not going to hire someone because they're dyslexic, congratulations, you've just not hired Richard Branson. Um, if you're not going to hire, like, neurodivergence alone, if that's what you're using to not hire someone, you've lost out on Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Richard Branson, and Shaheo uh, Tajiri, who's the guy that made Pokemon. <laughs> and I think all, there's not a day that goes by where one of those four people hasn't made my life better. <laughs> I feel you. Yes. Oh, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the Imposter Club podcast. I hope you um, have enjoyed spilling and it wasn't too deeply personal. I know you're always happy to, to talk as openly and I really respect hey, that. If it, if, it isn't, if it isn't personal, what's the point? Thanks, Adam. Really appreciate it. No problem. That's it for this episode of The Imposter Club, brought to you by Talented People. I'm Kimberly Godbolt and it has been lovely to hang out with you while you commute slash gym slash dog walk or whatever you're doing. If this has struck a chord, please go ahead and share it with your friends in that closed WhatsApp group I'm not in or on your social networks. Our aim is to reach as many fellow imposters as we can to share love and learnings and create a sense of belonging. And if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode drop. Thank you to Talented People, produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, exec producer, Rosie Turner, editor, Ben Mullins. See you later.